It's time for another episode of the Laura Sanzo Podcast, where we celebrate the world you see. And now your host, Laura Sanzo. Welcome to the first episode of the second season of the Laura Sanso podcast. I hope you love the new name, the new look, and the new mission. This season, every episode, you are going to see the world through the eyes of our guests. And today I have three incredible women and you're going to have the privilege. They're super incredible, brave women who are going to share their version of the world through their eyes of women that have experienced eating disorder. So you're going to be able to hear their stories. We are going to debunk the ideology that eating disorders only affect a certain age range, but affects anyone regardless of gender, age, racial and ethnic identity, sexual orientation and social economic background. So thank you. Thank you, ladies, so much. Before we get started, I just want to I actually had a conversation with Sandy a while back and it wasn't until she told me this that I even realized that in Canada and also in the U.S., eating disorders have the highest overall mortality rate of any mental illness. And we're going to talk about this coming up. But I think for as a society, when we talk about mental illness, we talk about anxiety and depression and bipolarism, which is our all you know incredibly important mental illnesses. But we never really define eating disorder as a mental illness. I always find that's more of a social illness. Um, there's such a fine line between you know the health and wellness industry that is you know, really encouraging calorie counting and watching what you eat and fitness and all and that whole lifestyle and the mental illness part of it. So I'm so excited for you ladies to really share that it is a mental illness that requires treatment and diagnosis. And because I think a lot of people don't even realize that there is treatment for eating disorder and a diagnosis, right? So we'll get started. If you can share your story with the listeners, just, you know, when did you know that there was a problem? Go ahead. Go ahead, Kathy. I just a comment for what you said before. I think when your point, oh, shoot, I'm having a brain fart. When you <laughs> said that, oh, you didn't know it was part of a mental illness. I think because the people have a mental illness and then the eating disorder comes because of that mental illness. That's the way I look at it. For some people, yeah. Yeah. For some people, you know, it, one you have before you have the other. It doesn't always come hand in hand, but usually yeah, it does. Definitely. So do you want so Kathy, since you have the, the mic, the virtual mic, do you want to get started? Just tell us a little bit about about your story. Like I said, so you were diagnosed when you were 60. So was that because you didn't have the illness until? Oh, I no, I had the illness and it always came up differently. Twice I was really sick with it. First of all, that time, no one put a name to it. There was no eating disorders until Karen Carpenter died. So this is pre-Karen Carpenter, you know? So no one had a name for an illness and no one thought about it, you know? I grew up in a Jewish family, you know, everybody pinching those cheeks. Food was really, you know, important. And that may have been one part of it. There are a lot of other things that came along with it or started before, who knows? But then it didn't really come out thickly until I was 28 for the first time. But I went undiagnosed completely. And I had a baby and suffered terribly. And it wasn't until my daughter was two that I started getting treatment for depression. So that's how I was told. And it wasn't until after my father passed away that I just flourished again. Of course, this time bulimia. Mm -hmm. And I was really sick and I wasn't telling anybody. And my children were just watching me die. And they didn't know what to do because it wasn't something that was discussed. They were watching me, but I thought I had everything hidden. So they couldn't tell. And it came to one day that I just told a girlfriend of mine because I was just crying. I couldn't, I was frozen. Couldn't leave my house. I couldn't go anywhere. Couldn't do anything. So one day I just broke down and then I told my doctor. How long ago was that? Two years ago. And he did not know anything about it, but he was willing to learn. And he got me into the program at Credit Valley Hospital. I love that. Sandy, do you feel that your journey resembled that at all? No, I was very different. I was very seriously neglected as a child, molested and abused very, very badly. 
So I would go to school not wearing proper clothing and everyone made fun of me. I'd go to school without brushed hair. I was bullied at home and then went to school and got bullied. So in I went to school in the summertime, a play school type program so I could get out of my house. And I was always malnourished and the skinniest one there. So I started getting attention for always being the smallest one there at the preschool or the play school rather. And a girl came in who was smaller than me and everyone was like, oh my gosh, and putting their arms around her waist and saying, look how skinny she was. And she's skinnier than me. And I'm like, well, how did she get that way? Mm. And someone said, by not eating. So now the only thing I had in the whole world that made me special or lovable was being that small. And it just continued on until my teenage years when all of it started coming back. And the only way to numb everything and the post-traumatic stress was to just not eat. It was like, so you sliver away inside of yourself and you hide in like a cocoon where no one can get in and no one can touch you because it doesn't matter what's going on in the whole entire world. The only thing that matters is that you're losing weight or thinking about food or how you're going to exercise, how you're going to get something off. The whole world stops now. Nothing can touch you. You're in this little bubble all by yourself and you've lost everybody. And the only thing you have now is your best friend that's guiding you. And it's like a demon that possesses you and it's in control of you. And the sicker you get, the weaker you get. And the demon takes control and just goes and you're lost in there and you're locked and you can't get out. How long was that from? I was eight years old and I was hospitalized in sick kids hospital by 12. I was in there for a few months and fooling around. I had NG feeds and stuff, and I was able to get away with hiding the feeds. And I won't say what I did. I don't want to give people ideas, but I was able to get away with not having the full NG feeds. So they figured it all out and I went home. And then by 19, I had suffered my first cardiac arrest in Toronto General Hospital with Dr. Woodside, a great program. It was a great program anyways. So yes, I did that. And then I was pregnant with my son. And just after he was born, I went down very hard because he almost died from my eating disorder. So it hit me so hard that I was such a horrible person. And now I'm bad again and awful and nasty and dirty and gross. And all of a sudden income, I need to numb. I can't do it. I can't think. I can't handle it. I can't look at it. And so it just, you know, I got really, really sick. And at that time, they told me I wasn't going to live. I was put in intensive care and left to die. I managed to live and have been fine for years and years and years and years. And all of a sudden, my dad passed away suddenly. A couple of years later, my mom died. Then my best friend hung himself. And then another good friend of mine also killed himself. And then my dog was eaten by a coyote on the front lawn. When all these different things happened, it was suddenly a giant shock. And all of a sudden, the assaults from like the uh, abuse from the past, sexually ab- sexual abuse, the memories started flooding in. I have very severe post-traumatic stress disorder, which is another reason for the eating disorder. Yeah. So reliving all that, I had to find a way to stop it. And the only way to stop it was for the eating disorder to take over again and to let go. And I find with the pandemic coming in, the lack of control and the terror, always so scared of my you're afraid all the time. And suddenly I have to move during this pandemic. And there's a lot of stuff going on that I feel the relapse coming. And, you know, so it's triggering very heavy relapse. And it's not just myself. I won't say other people who are relapsing, but I know quite a few people that are struggling due to the pandemic, the uncertainty, the fears, you know, loss of incomes. It's really quite a terrifying time leading me into another relapse. However, I am on a waiting list for a program at Credit Valley right now so that I don't get as sick as I was last time. (laughs) We'll talk about treatments in a few minutes. Mel, do you want to just chime in there and just give us a little look into your journey? Yeah. So I'm Melissa. I'm 26 years young. And prior to my eating disorder, I had lots of like family issues going on, which I won't get into, but a lot of lack of control was it for me. And last year, or no, October 2019, I knew I had a problem because I sat in my car before work and I sat and I ate a whole bag of chocolate to myself. And I knew like that I had a problem then because I never would do that before. And like just sitting there in my car and eating everything, like just eating that whole bag 
and I wanted to make myself throw up afterwards. That's when I knew I had like a really bad problem because I would never do that to myself. I would never sit and eat a whole bag of chocolate. I would never want to make myself throw up. So the lack of control that I had over my life from like previous stuff is what led to my eating disorder. So sorry, I thought I wasn't going to cry. And now I'm just like, how old are you now, Mel? I'm 26. So when it happened, I was 24. So two years ago, it happened to me. And then when we get into the treatments, we can talk about it. But October 2019 is when it really hit. Prior to that, I had been diagnosed with like anxiety and depression and just a lot of like not having control over a lot in your life for me is what started my eating disorders. I, I want, I'm glad you brought that up. It was actually a note that I had in terms of the control aspect that I was wondering, this actually was a trigger for me when I spoke to Sandy prior to this recording. How much of control do you think has led to the eating disorder for you guys in the sense of almost alluding to what Sandy and Mel said that like, you know, it almost feels like everything else is falling apart around you, but this is like the one thing that you can control is how that much. That is true because I couldn't stop myself from being abused. I couldn't protect myself. And then after I was assaulted and the things happened to me, I was still a victim. Nobody ever had to pay for what they did to me ever. I have no control. They all got away with it. Everyone was allowed to do whatever they wanted to me. And I had no control over it. And just like my mom and dad died, no control and I can't have them back. And then even though they were very abusive, I always wanted them to just love me no matter what. And by the way, I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder from all the trauma and stuff and not bad kind or killer kind or anything like that, but just, <laughs> yeah. You're, you're in the same room with her. <laughs> I found with myself, I think it came when I started suffering the actual eating disorder more, I became more a little OCD control. I'm a, I was a hygienist. Everything had to be perfect. So, you know, I was the type of person to set up everything the night before and have everything organized and every patient's chart organized. I couldn't just go in the morning and and prep. Everything had to be perfect. And I think when I could no longer do that, I think that's when I became really overtly sick, you know, but wasn't diagnosed and had to live with it for another 30 years before you know, I lost control of everything. The loss of my father, you know, I've been a single parent raising my children, which is not easy. I wasn't able to work since 2001 due to a disability, you know, all these things. So then slowly you're losing control again. And then with the pandemic, well, whoa, just throw that out the window. And even though I've been through a program, I'm sure others feel the same way is it's not over just because you did a program. Mm-hmm. Every day I have a fight. I'm in a losing battle. That's the way I look. I know I'm not strong enough because not one moment goes by in a day where I am not consumed with it. Whatever this is that's talking to me and saying, do not eat. And why am I listening to it? I've gone through the program. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm fighting this battle, which I really don't think. I'm 62 now. I don't know. when I've never had a moment where I haven't had it. So how am I going to continue to live and not have this? Unfortunately, it gets worse each time mm-hmm. that it flares up. Well, it's, it's almost as if it's become part of your identity now. It's just, you don't know how to live without it in any other way. I'm curious, Mel, if I can ask, listening to Sandy and Kathy, who are a little older than you, just a titch, <laughs> but are still very much embodied in this disease, how does that make you feel and like about your future in the sense of like, does it make you want to change the way you're doing things now? I'm just... Yeah. Like I honestly, this like I never thought to this day I would have an eating disorder. I never thought I'd be diagnosed. I thought that I was like doing the best that I could. But I think like it blows my mind that this stereotype is like the whole college, you get an eating disorder, but you don't think people that are so like far apart in age could have an eating disorder. So it's like when you find out for me, like in my eyes, at least like the moment I found out, like I knew I had to take control because if you don't control it, it's just going to control you. So I think for me, at least, like, again, like, it's mind blowing that people who are like in their 60s could have an eating disorder. Like, like what? Like, it's just, you don't, like, no one knows anyone's circumstances or like their life situations. And it's like, you have to just tackle it. I hope that answers the question. Like, it just, 
it's mind blowing is I guess the best answer to say. No, I love that. And I want to stay there for a second. And I just want to flip it to Kathy and Sandy in terms of what resonates, what comes up for you when, you know, even Mal just alluded to the fact that there's this ideology that, you know, eating disorders is a schoolgirl disease or something that happens, like Mal said, in school or young girls or, you know, these stereotypical Instagram, like influencers or the thin one, like, you know what I mean? Something that happens within that season of their life. And well, cause I'm, you know, confident what Mel said is that, you know, when people think about eating disorders, it is mm-hmm. a younger girl disease versus women all through their seasons of their lives. I think for me, it's a big trigger. First of all, you see these young girls who I remember being that age and not understanding what I had at that age, you know, and being insecure and, and going through this. And I think you're just young, you're skinny anyway, you don't have any issues, you know, your parents take care of you. Even now, understanding what I have gone through and why I have this disease, I still find I'm very unaccepting of these young girls. Like when you said you sit in a car and you eat a bag of chocolates, I go, that's like half a meal. That's on a daily basis. You know what I mean? How many drive throughs have you gone through? And oh, you don't eat. So I'm sorry. I'm believing. <laughs> I've heard too. So, but I mean, you know, things that we have done for years and years and years, you guys now can be so easily diagnosed and quickly, you know, you, you've had it for a couple of years. How lucky you already know what it is and how to deal with it. I never was that lucky. You know what I mean? And so I think when I see these young girls and they say, yeah, they're suffering, I go, they have no idea what suffering is. And I look at them and I still want to be them. That's the worst part of it, which Mm -hmm. makes my suffering even more because I'm guilty for what I think and I'm guilty for what I want to do. Yeah. Right. And I think this platform is very validating for everybody with anorexia. I want to tell a story about a girl that I know in my early days of treatment. She was very, very, very overweight. She had lost 100 pounds. She was very anorexic. She told her friends. They made fun of her. She wouldn't get treatment. I'm like, you are anorexic. You're you're very anorexic. You need help. No, I don't. I'm still so fat. Look at how fat I am. She died of heart failure because she lost a hundred pounds in six months from my, she died, never being validated or vindicated that she had an eating disorder. We are missing so many groups of people with eating disorders focused on these super little skinny model girls. Now, let me tell you, those super little skinny model girls are just as sick as all of us are. We are all sick together in this eating disorder. We are all in a battle for our lives, but we have to take a look at around us. There are children who are six years old now. I started at eight. There are women, a 70-year-old woman I know now who absolutely refuse to believe that she has the model disease. She's 70. She's about to die. She will die because she will not get treatment. That is not a disease for her. It's just ridiculous that she would even consider that illness. So she will pass away. So I think this is so vindicating to everybody. All validating, validating. Yeah, validating. When I first thought about the blog, I had seen that little short film Gain, and I was upset because yet again it showed young girls, right? So I had a comment for it. This is, you know, generally what you'll see, but what about women of age? Why are we missing that? And you have to remember, majority of women my age have never been treated for it because it was never discussed. It was never known. The doctors don't know about it. So they've gone majority of their life sick without a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about the moms? Like you're about to give birth, right? And when sure. I had my son, I had the eating disorder and everybody looked at me like a mom. So, you know, you don't have an eating disorder and you're worried. I can't have an eating disorder. I have my kid. Well, I don't have to eat right now. I'm just going to make them food. Well, I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And all of a sudden you've spiraled into the eating disorder. You don't even know you're there. Oh, it, it finds you. Yeah. Like it's very quickly. Actually, I'd love to stay there for a second, Mal. Sorry, how many months again did you say you were? Six months. I'm six months pregnant. So you're six months pregnant with your first. Yeah. Do you feel triggered at all? Because you were obviously gaining weight as any pregnant woman does. Yeah. You know what? The weight gain has been like so exhilarating, to be honest. Like I started my pregnancy underweight, actually, because I'm still recovering from my eating disorder. But right now, the main trigger point for me, because baby is at this stage of like high growth. So I'm the past two weeks, well, the past month I've been fluctuating with my mood and I'm not on any medication or anything, but the past two weeks, the amount of food I've consumed, I cry after I eat now. Like I'll have dinner. I'll have like a few chocolates. I'll go and have something else. 
I'll go and eat again. And it's in the evening time that I'll cry because I've just consumed so much. And I'm like, that's not like typical for me. And it's, yes, I have a human growing inside me. So like my dietitian reminds me, my doctors remind me, but right now the hardest part in my pregnancy, like just currently is just the amount I eat. And then how weird I feel after, like, do I feel like, why do I feel gross eating all of this food when I should be happy because I'm feeding a child inside of me? And I went through the same thing. I did. Yeah. I was very underweight when I got pregnant. My doctor would clap at my weigh-ins because yeah. it was healthy for the baby. I, that was a very big struggle. And the worst part was I had no morning sickness. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel bad. I had to eat constantly. That's all. I just, it would make me feel good yet make me feel terrible, but I knew the baby. And that's why I just went with the flow. I thought this is not normal for me, but this is what my baby needs. And I just went with the flow. And of course, like I said, unfortunately, the moment I had the baby things changed, but I just went with it and I just gave her what she needed. That was it. Yeah. And that's what my dietitian, I'm grateful that I still have her to this day since my eating disorder, but she said like, this is prime time for baby. So like, just understand that this is very healthy. Another thing that I have to do now, we had a scale in our bathroom, like we had to remove it during my eating disorder. And I was so happy looking at it lately because like every certain milestone of my weight gain, I'm like, okay, I want to have like cupcakes and celebrate this. But now that my eating in the evening has like triggered me, I'm like, we need to just get rid of it until I'm okay at it. So it's like, it's so bittersweet, you know, because it's like, I'm so happy I'm gaining this weight. But then it's like, why do I feel like garbage because I'm feeding myself when food is fuel? So it's just so mind boggling. It just goes to show you how little control we actually have over the illness. People think it's as easy as picking up food. And it's just not. It absolutely is not. And I always say an alcoholic, there's programs, AA, they can go. They don't have to drink. They don't have to go to LCBO and and pick up alcohol. They can live in an alcohol-free house. A drug addict can go to rehab. They don't have to go to those places, right? But anorexic has to have food. People have to have food around them. They have to have liquids. They have to have food. It's always there. And yet you see on TV and in pictures, skinny is in, and you're already, you know, got that voice all the time. So it's a constant, like, I don't know how anybody gets to I thought you were going to say about the lack of treatment. The lack of treatment. Definitely for us. There is four beds at Credit Valley Hospital inpatient. I suffered cardiac arrest and was in intensive care for two weeks, signed myself out. And before going in the program, when I went in, I was in critical condition going in and fighting for my life, waiting for the program. I waited over six months. I I don't want to, I shouldn't say my weight, but it was horrific. And I should never have had to get nobody to get that sick. Nobody should die from a mental illness. If you're going to commit suicide, you're inpatient. That's it. You're locked down. And also anorexic eating disorder patients, rather anorexia nervosa, bulimia, any eating disorder should not be in a general psychiatric ward either. Oh, absolutely segregated from that because it's too hard for us to deal with our own issues, let alone watching other people's reactions and what's going on and causing post-traumatic stress in us or fear or anything that would trigger us. You know, we need like AA. Well, we don't want to be treated like we should be in that kind of ward because we're not, right? Just because we have an eating disorder or some other issues, why do we have to go through that ward? Well, for me personally, I'm triggered by violent outbursts. So in the program, it is segregated at Credit Valley from the rest of the unit. But when people would freak out and I could hear them outside, I'd be gone for about two hours, kind of like you saw me earlier, where I don't mind if you air that me. I, that was post-traumatic. I could see it, so I can't function. Screw it, I'm doing it again. Oh. <laughs> You're talking about it. Yeah. So what was I going to say? It's not good to be. It's not good to be triggered there because yeah. then you're, you know, now I have to deal with this where I really need to be focusing on recovery and not being scared or feared that something's going to trigger me. That is my personal feeling. I don't mind being around mentally ill people as long as they're not going insane. You know what I mean? They, they're they medicated. They're normal, you know, because no, it's you just, terrifying. You can't have them around yeah, because it's scary for me. So let's say there for a minute for treatment and recovery. So the young 
whatever age group, male, female, that's going to listen to this and, you know, it's going to resonate and be like, I think I have a problem. Can you just give us a glimpse into each of your treatments, recovery, and in terms of what they can now do? What would be their next step if they're like, okay, there's something wrong. I know that there's something that's not right. What would be their next step? I would love to discuss that because this hits home with me. Okay. So I was in the program. First of all, it was very difficult for me to decide to go into the program because it's every day I have kids at home. I know they're older, but still the dynamic at home is I'm the caregiver. So it was hard for me to make that decision. It's a long period of time, you know, and it's an everyday thing. And when I come home from that program, I'm not coming home to a happy home and I'm okay and everything's cool. No, I'm like been through hell and back. I'm going to bed, you know whatever. But I found that I did the program. Pandemic came. Program ended for me a couple weeks early, but very abruptly, which was a huge trigger for me because all of a sudden I had treatment and I had nothing from one day to the next. So that was excruciating for me. And then because I do not have insurance coverage, I'm not working. I do not. I'm not able to have aftercare. I don't have a therapist. I don't have someone I can discuss it with. I've tried you know, the city run therapy programs, you're only entitled to, I think, five. The woman was completely unable to help me. Like the things she was saying, it was like, are you kidding me? Like it didn't even make sense. And this is the city run. I can't afford privately run. So I'm now without treatment and I am falling behind. And for me to sit here and say, I'm lost again, but I don't want treatment because I'm so lost. Like I know where I am right now but I have no help. So I'm going to just have to go on the way I was. Except now I have more knowledge, but I can't fight this by myself. So I see my future and it's not great because there is no help out there for me. Now, Sandra's different. She sees the therapist and I'm not sure about anybody else, but you know, each person is different. Yeah. I do see a therapist uh, once a week, especially right now. And I also see Dr. Staub at Credit Valley. And I would suggest the first step someone take is going to your family doctor and letting them know what's going on with you. Tell them that you need a referral. There are different programs. There is Toronto General Program. There is Credit Valley. There are programs in London. There is a program, Homewood Program, Hamilton Hamilton as well, Hamilton Program. So there's different programs, but I suggest going to the doctor and making a referral first you know, and make sure you're following up with your doctor with blood tests, EKGs, stuff like that, or uh, like, that's if you know, you have it. A lot of people are in denial and will not say they have it. That's an issue too. That's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. That's because people don't understand the illness. They don't believe it. They think it's, oh, hello, I'm not going to eat today. Here's a little thing I tell people to understand an eating disorder. Have you ever been um, to turkey dinner at Thanksgiving? And you eat and you eat and you eat and you're sitting there and you got it under your pants and you're sitting back and you're like, oh my God, I got to go to the bathroom. So you go to the bathroom and you relieve yourself and you're just sitting there for a couple minutes and you're like, oh, and you feel so good. It's almost like a utopia feeling like the empty feeling is like, oh, that's what the eating disorder does for me. It feels empty. So I'm like, okay, oh my God. Okay. And with each pound, it's like, yes, triumph, victory. Yeah. You know, but yeah, I think that people really need to make the first step in going to a doctor and discussing how they're feeling and get a referral to a program. But the city also owes it to its citizens to have proper care, health care, mm-hmm. and for mental illness, regardless of what it is, not some city workers who are going to say, oh, this, or don't think of this, or don't think of that. That's not helping someone who's sick. Mm-hmm. And just because I can't afford it doesn't mean I should have shitty care or zero care. No, definitely. For me, my first step was going to my doctor and she, like, I had to go through like this whole process. I had to talk to someone and then I was let in at Credit Valley. And I also see Dr. Staub. I hope it's okay that we mentioned his name on here. <laughs> I actually oh, talked I spoke to him. <laughs> I just talked to him literally two weeks ago. So I still to this day see him because I'm not fully recovered. But pre-COVID, I would go to like the groups. I was never put into or at the intenseness of having to get like admitted, I guess would be the appropriate word. I did like the like the psychoeducation groups. Like I did the group, I call it group therapy. I think it's just easier that way for people to like. It was that once a week. 
Yeah, it was once a week. Yeah. And I would leave work and I would go there and I would go to this group program. Outside of that, I had therapy. Like I would talk to a therapist. I had a dietitian, nutritionist, and I still to this day have a nutritionist and a, doc- a nutritionist and a dietitian. I call her like both because she's like kind of both to me. And then outside of that, like I had a really good group of people like who also um, had eating disorders. So I was able to speak to them. This person I knew out like out of this company that I um, I work for, I'm like associated with, I guess is the best way to know I work for it, but she ran eating disorder, like a four week program. So I was able to do stuff outside of just the hospital, which was nice for me because, you know, going to a hospital, like, you know, just a hospital, it's like, well, shit, I'm at a hospital today. So I had lots of different resources and then COVID hit, but I know we're going to talk about pandemic stuff afterwards. So I'll wait until I get into that. But yeah, those are moments, but let's talk about the pandemic because it keeps coming up. Um, you know, no secret, the pandemic has been hard regardless if, you know, if they have a mental illness or not, I think it's also brought a lot of mental illness to surface for people. So let's talk about how the pandemic has impacted each of you in terms of, you know, me not be able to get this, the services you would have been getting without the pandemic happening, Mm -hmm. lockdown, not being able to, you know, be out as you would in routine. I feel like I should say I have bulimia nervosa. I'm, I'm not, I don't have anorexia. I was diagnosed with bulimia nervosa, which is a different eating disorder. I feel like I have to put it out there because everyone's diagnosis is different, but I'm so sorry to have cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to say like the extentness before we talk pandemic, the extremist is so like variable, like with bulimia nervosa, like the typicalness of it is like you throw up. I never got to that stage. You use laxatives. I never got to that stage. I just like would binge and starve myself. So that's what I personally did. So I, I just want to say like the extremities are just so different for everyone. So like you could be at the bottom of the totem pole and have like not severe bulimia nervosa, whereas like someone else could have like the highest of the highest of the totem pole. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's also, like that's also really important to like tell people there because there are many shades between the black so and the white. Different. Yeah, it's just yeah. so different for everyone. It's like my son has autism. It's the same thing with the spectrum. Like just because he's a little higher functioning than than the other kid doesn't mean he's any less or more. Exactly. Say right. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Sandy, you were going to chime in about the pandemic. Okay, so for me personally, with the pandemic, I just sit around all day thinking about my life. Memories pop up. There's nowhere to go. My new my other dog passed away, so I'm lonely in the house when my husband's at work. So I start walking around and cleaning and cleaning. And then the obsession took off with the cleaning. And then I started exercising around the house and running around the house. And I was so bored and I was tired all the time. So I started, I won't take, I ordered diet pills because I was so bored and want some hyperactivity. Yeah. So it's been very hard, very hard uh, being at home. You can't connect with people. You can't go out. You can't, there is nothing to do. You can only clean your house so much. And then the memories and stuff start coming back and you're alone. So all you do is think it's, it can be very toxic, <laughs> toxic. There's no other word, really. Yeah. yeah. I think my anxiety has been so high during the pandemic, you know, afraid to go out. My kids, I had surgery during the pandemic. So my kids are hypervigilant. You know, you can't go out. You can't do this. You can't go grocery shopping. Are you doing like they're just, you have to eat and they're always on me. And because, well, my son moved out, but my daughter's there every day. So she's always watching and she's like an eagle eye. And I feel like I have no escape, but then my anxiety goes up. I can't go out of the house. You know, my panic attacks happen. But the worst part is I still talk to Dr. Staub. We have an appointment every eight weeks, whatever, but the pandemic helps me. Why? I haven't seen him. We don't even do Zoom calls. It's just phone calls. I'm going to be the first to admit. I lie through my teeth. Do you eat every meal? Absolutely. Doing your homework? Absolutely, I am. He doesn't hear this. <laughs> no, but it, I, I'm getting to the point where I have to be honest with myself, right? But yeah. there's no accountability because of the pandemic. Who's there to see you? Yeah. Who's there? You know, like if my daughter moved out, I'd be home alone. Who's my guard then? You yeah. know? That's what's happening with me. You don't see your doctor. One goes to work, so I'm yeah alone. I'm surprised you guys don't see him. So I don't know if this can be in the podcast, but I go see I him. Do. Yeah, I, see him. Oh, yeah. I don't see him. Yeah. I can go see him. I like 
I opt to go see him. I'm like, I can get out of my house. Like, let me come to the hospital for half an hour, 15. I don't care. Let me get out for 15 minutes. Or like, actually, it's an hour, an hour and a half because I drive there, 20 minutes, half an hour. I sit, do my appointment, come home. Like, it's such a nice outing. Yeah. So sad to say that, but it's such a nice thing. And you're usually the only one in the waiting area. Yeah, in the waiting room. You just sit there, mm-hmm. hang out, you wait for your name to get called. And I'm like, hey, what's happening? <laughs> Kathy, you brought up your children's and you brought up your children's. I want to just stay there for a second. How has this journey impacted your families, your relationships? My son has been so distraught because he doesn't remember me being sick. He grew up in a very well-functioning, well-adjusted, normal home, full of love. You saw me on set, always loving and kind and happy all the time, turning into a person who had absolutely no emotional control. So if I felt something, it would just come out of my mouth. I turned into a lunatic to the point that he went and moved to us, went away to school so that he didn't have to be around it. And he checked out for a while. He had to get therapy. And I I know he won't mind me saying this. He had to get therapy. And but it's made us both stronger. And he's coming through it on the other side. And he is in personal health and fitness and hopes to make a difference with eating disorders and being able to help people with eating disorders through all of what he's doing. He's a motivational speaker. He's doing so amazing right now. He's a a big advocate on don't step on the scale. How do you feel? Love that. Oh my God. Yeah. So it's really affected him a lot. It's changed the path of his life. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Kathy? For me, I guess I didn't realize how much it affected my children. My children are older, 31 and 27. So when they were younger, since it was a struggle for me, I had to hide it. You know, I always tried to hide what I was doing because I didn't want to pass it on. Well, you pass it on. You pass it on by your behaviors, by your mental illness and your mental illness and raising your children. So even though you don't mean to, there's things that you pass on. But with this latest bout, I didn't realize how scared they were. I didn't understand how it was affecting them because I thought I was doing such a great job hiding it. I didn't think I looked anorexic. I always thought I looked fat, right? So I didn't think anybody could tell by looking at me that I was sick because no one ever said to me, you look sick. They said, you've lost so much. You look great. That's what's happening now on my Facebook. So it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, I can get, but I tortured my children. My children are damaged because of what I did to them. They had to watch me. They had to hide medication from me. They felt If they wanted to leave the house, they were worried that I would pass out and not get up because I had done that. You know what I mean? They, I, for five years until I was diagnosed and it was really bad, I put them through hell and I will live with that. Just adds more guilt to the whole blossoming issue, which just makes me feel worse about myself. You know, it's just that circle, you know, like a hamster wheel. That's what it is. So I'm going to add a little bit here. Try not to cry. My daughter, my oldest daughter, slept beside me on the bed every night and would feel my pulse to make sure I was breathing. I couldn't get up anymore. So I would get out of bed and pass out. She moved home, switched her whole life out to come home and take care of me. And she had to face that I was going to die. And they had to hold my hand in the intensive care unit thinking that I was going to die. And I had to watch them cry. And it died. (laughs) Okay. It's really, 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 it, it's hard to know what we do to our kids. We don't mean to. If this wasn't a disease, if it was a disease rather that we can control, there's no way we would hurt our children. There's no way. There's no way that we would even hurt ourselves. We want to live. I think most of us want to live. It's not about that. It's about escaping and being, you know, having something, you know, I don't want to hurt my kids. You don't want to hurt your kids. We don't want to hurt our kids. If we had control over this. And they just say, they say, eat. Yeah. You know what you have to do. Just eat something. If it were just that easy, People we wouldn't, wouldn't be die. sick. And, and nobody, nobody would die. die. Nobody would die if it was so easy. To I put know something I have to eat. Yeah. I know it's there. I can now go into a grocery store and go to shopping, but I won't eat that food that I buy. I don't know. I don't know what happens. Well, I like my, like my pandemic story is just so different. But like hearing this part, like, it makes me like realize more for when my daughter comes, what I need to do to like be the best that I can be. And like, because I don't want 
like we never know what we're doing. Like when, when I was at my lowest point in 2019, 2020, like I live with my in-laws, I'm not married yet, but I call them my in-laws. I didn't realize like how much like shit and stress I put them through. I hope I'm okay to swear on here. I don't know. <laughs> I already did. I know you did. I, was like, oh, I honestly didn't know how much stress I put on them because like, you know, I would sit there and I wouldn't eat or I'd say like, you know, like I had, like I wanted to die. I would never want to, like, I would never go through with it. But there were like just days where they would just be like, did you eat today? Like they had to constantly check in on me. My fiance was always like, checking in on me like did you eat today like what did you eat like you just don't know what stress you're putting on people because you like we think we're putting on this perfect picture of like i'm doing great today but people can like i guess people can just see through us and we honestly just don't know it so i don't know i feel like i don't know (laughs) i'm just i'm gonna do my best for when i am a parent and like now like i advocate for myself a lot like when I'm feeling like garbage i'll say like no like i feel like shit or like i'll sometimes hide it and they know and they're like oh no like it's okay. You can talk to us, but I'm like, no, I can't. Like, it's not something easy to talk about because. But you have to like, talk about it. But unless that person's educated, though, it's like they don't get it. That's like, right. but we have to educate them. We have to educate them. We have to talk more. And sometimes it's so difficult because it's like you could say, like, I just don't want to eat it. They're like, well, there's food in the fridge, but it's like it's it's just not that easy to be like, let me go grab a yogurt from the fridge because. Prior to this, it's like I wouldn't want to eat because I'd want to make myself like I wouldn't want to just do it. It's just so hard to like want to eat something. And then after that, I'd want to throw up and then I'd starve myself for a while. Or like if I ate something junky, it's like I would pick junk over something healthy. And then when I did that, it's like I don't understand that. I do that too. I do that. My kids go, You have to eat something healthy. Don't eat that donut. Right. But like if it's something that's going to make you feel good, like, don't deprive yourself. If that's one thing I've learned okay. so far is like never deprive yourself. If you want a donut, go and eat a donut. Mm-hmm. Don't starve yourself. But that can't be the only thing you eat. But it can't be the only thing right. you eat. If as long as you have like a good balance, like you know, maybe have an apple after. Mm-hmm. But, but I know that my kids, I feel that they're embarrassed when I tell people I have an eating disorder. I just feel that they feel uncomfortable, but yet I feel I should be able to talk about it because if I say something and one person goes, Oh my God, that sounds kind of like me. Mm-hmm. Then that doesn't that help? It helps. So much. I find that even amongst my friends, I feel uncomfortable discussing it because they don't really want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if it's to do with my age for sure. Or they're thinking like, what does some old broad be talking about this young person's disease? So that's one stereotype. Yeah. But I also feel that a lot of people just don't have time. They, everybody has their own issues, but right? this is, very important because so many people struggle regardless of age or sex or mm-hmm. religion or race. They all suffer from it. And it is very insidious. Very. It, yeah. I had a gentleman, he was asking me what medications I was on and I was telling him the medications, the list of medications. He was somebody for something appointment that I had. And then I said, well, he's what illnesses he had. I said, anorexia. He goes, oh, when was that? And I go last year. And he goes, well, that's a kid disease. You had anorexia in a bowl. So what? That's a, that's a little kid disease. You didn't have that. And I'm like, okay, then I didn't. Yeah. Is this somebody and in I was the so, field? what's that? Was somebody in the medical field? Yes. And I just stood there going, well, I hope you get fired. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've been vaccinated. So I don't know if the person was actually in the medical field or just like getting information, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's what they said to me. I feel like most professional, like at least like doctors and stuff, like need to have an understanding because like so many people like are just like the pandemic is like a prime example of like people are so many people are dying from mental illness. And like when I was watching Gain, it was like college 15, but it's like the what's it called? The pandemic 15. And I was like, I hate stereotypes so much. They're such an annoying thing. And it's like for your case, for a doctor to say that to you, like. Are you not educated in your field? Like I'm very lucky. My doctor wanted to learn more because of course I wasn't honest. I wasn't telling him what I was doing at first. I was angry at him that he didn't notice that I had lost all this weight over mm-hmm. a period of time. I, I can't be sick. Even my doctor doesn't notice that I'm sick. Mm-hmm. So when I came to my one friend and I told her what was going on and she said, you have to talk to your GP, you have to tell him. 
I only told him certain things, but I was so lucky with those certain things I told him. He said, I don't know enough. Let me do some research. There's not a lot of GPs that will do that, you know, and I guess they're not teaching them enough in medical school because this is out there and people are dying. As where my doctor said, you are extremely fat. You are obese, overweight, and you need to lose weight. So after a hundred pounds, after a certain amount of weight that I lost, he was like, look at you're looking great. That's fantastic. Keep up the great work. So I did. And then I told him I had an eating disorder. He didn't believe me. He absolutely did not believe me. He was like, whatever. Okay, no, you're doing really well. Keep it up. And it wasn't until I got critically low that he was like, whoa. And I'm like, yeah, I told you I had it before and it's back. And it was too late by then. I started to crash. It was way too late. Things were going bad, really bad. And it took that long and that kind of sick before my even my doctor even believed that someone my age could have an eating disorder. He thought it was like kids who wanted to model. And that was a family doctor. And he's still my family doctor, believe it or, or not. Or dancers. Or dancers. Yeah. yeah. And I am a, I was trained as a dancer my whole life. I want to talk about social media for a second. I think for the girls that are a little younger and, you know, are dealing with social, with um, eating disorders, I think one thing that they may not have had to, or they'd have to deal with that maybe somebody who is a little bit older didn't have to deal with growing up, because regardless if it's eating disorders or not, is is the pressure of social yeah. media. I knew like when I was my daughter's age, we didn't have social media. And now there's, you know, as much as social media could be an incredible vessel for so many things, it is you know, the mm-hmm. imposter syndrome, scrolling and seeing, you know, women that look a certain way yes. or have a certain lifestyle, whatever that is. So it takes one human being yeah. to see any age, to see an ad on TV or on social media that says, sin without guilt, try this new chocolate product, sin without guilt, that meaning eat whatever you want and feel no guilt. Why should I feel guilt if I eat? When did food become guilty to eat? When you market stuff, food with guilt, guilt becomes part of food, you know, and everything on TV is about weight. So you have parents around kids. It takes one person to trigger a diet. And then all of a sudden they find out they have an eating disorder. Don't know until they trigger that one diet. So the parents at home, oh my gosh, I can't fit in this. Oh my God, honey, how does my bum look fat? And there's the little girl looking in the mirror. Is my bum fat? Is my bum fat? She's six, seven years old, eight years old. Oh, I better be careful. I don't get a fat bum. And boom, she's got the illness in her head already. And it takes one diet to trigger that illness. And there you have a sick person for the rest of their life. I don't think that just gives them the illness. No, I think just by watching your mother go, oh, is my butt big? That no, the illness it. is there already. There's, there's other stuff. Yeah, that the illness is it. there yeah, already. Like yeah, but the, when people diet is when the illness pops out and takes over. Yeah. Because it's already there. That's what I'm trying to say. But it can take as easy as something like that. Or a husband saying, oh, my God, check out that girl. She's hot. Oh, check out her. She's hot. And you're oh, you're not you don't look like that. And in your brain, is, I'm going to go on a diet. So you go on a diet and all of a sudden you have eating disorder issues. And boom, you're now anorexic. So I really think that we need to focus on being happy inside and healthy as a human being in all aspects of life, rather than focusing on social media on bodies, bodies, bodies. Nowadays, little kids are dancing in these, ooh, ooh, ooh. They're wearing little skinny boob tops. Hello, where's the clothes? You know, they're 12 years old. They got fake hair, fake eyelash. Come on, we need to let our children grow up and have normal bodies. So that when they go to school, they don't feel like they have to live up to, uh, 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 uh. you know, these, these social media things, what they're doing. I don't know, TikToks and. Can I just say one other thing about that? I'm divorced and I found that put a lot of pressure on me also. So I was mm-hmm. alone to raise two children. I had to work, I had to keep a roof over their head, you know, all this added pressure. And I was dealing with something, trying not to, you know, let the kids see it, work, do their activities and everything. That's so much pressure that's just slowly boiling. You know, it's simmering on the stovetop, but it's going to boil over if you just keep adding stuff. And that's what happened. You know, I was disabled that so that the pot started really boiling, you know, and then something happened. Then my father passed away and then it just was over. The, that was it. There was no mm. longer a control. Yes. Yeah. So I want to say like when I was going through like my like 
when pandemic hit, when I was going, like I was thriving for the pandemic, but something that helped me with social media was like, I just unfollowed people. Like if there's one thing that I like would encourage anyone to do is if they don't vibe with you, if they make you feel like garbage, if they're not giving you joy, when you look at their stuff, unfollow them, unfriend them. Like you don't have to have a reason. If someone were to ask you, why unfollow me? You don't have to answer. Like, like just unfollow things that don't make you feel good. I still to this day do it every month, every like three weeks, I will literally go through my feed and I'm like, you don't give me joy. You make me feel like this. I'm going to unfollow you. So it's just like, don't feel bad about unfollowing people or not following people because your friends do it. Don't feel bad because it's a whole like, oh, this person's famous. I have to follow them. No, if they don't make you feel good on the inside, don't follow them because that's just going to make you want to make your expectations of yourself higher. And then it's just going to cause you to make you feel like garbage. And no one has time for that. Especially when you're Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you can hide the ads and especially yeah. when you're recovering or like just in general on a day-to-day basis, but speaking eating disorder wise, like you don't need to maintain like social media standards. Like social media is not your boss. Like you are not supposed to look like this. Like God granted you your body. Yes. We're going through this horrible like stage in life of this eating disorder, but you have like the most beautiful body. And if anyone can like love it it's like you and no one has the right to judge you based on your body so unfollow those people is all i have to say i don't know if you guys and and even maybe you laura have gotten these lose weight lose weight inbox inbox this new diet plan try this try that hey a few drops yeah i noticed you're overweight or i noticed that you want to exercise or i noticed you commented on like there was a post about chocolate this chocolate that gets you skinny and I posted on there, I wish chocolate would make me skinny. Inbox immediately. <laughs> Let me give you the right program for you. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. No, I was anorexic. But this isn't about diet. It's about a life plan. I can't oh, yeah. go on a life plan and they just harbor you, budge you and badger you. And it's that part of social media is very, very difficult when people are trying to get you to buy their product, especially when they're telling you, you need weight loss. Or, you know, I had a relative actually promoting a healthy lifestyle, but you have to buy the food right from this, mm-hmm. but look how good you look. And the pictures she was posting are very triggering, you know, overweight to so slim. There's no way. Come on, unless you're dieting, you're exercising every single day. You can't look like that. You pos- you can't possibly look like that. So I said to her, I said, you know, these pictures can be very triggering. You're not, you should think about a message you're sending. First of all, it's not a lifestyle or a healthy way of eating if you have to buy the product. Because you should be able to go to the grocery store or your back garden and be able to get the product, not buy it prepared. So she just unfriended me completely. Instead of listening to, you know, or trying to understand what might be happening, she just unfriended. Wow. Yeah. I think that's why there's such a fine line for people that have not got diagnosis. Because, sorry, have not got diagnosed because we live in a society in a time where it's kind of in your face. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you're just really restrictive on what you're eating and eliminating and that kind of thing. You just think that you're doing the norm that everybody else is doing. And you're just doing what we all kind of do, especially as women. And we don't ever think that this could be. And everybody should look alike. Everybody should look the same, you know, we all look the same. We'd be so boring of a community, of a world. My gosh, (laughs) how boring. Mm -hmm. Well, I know you did a lot of complimentary practices in addition to your medical treatments that has inspired you to start a business. Can you tell us a little bit about that, which is inspiring? So during, I just want to like go pre-pandemic or like during pandemic, I thrived when the pandemic hit last year. It was in my saving grace. I was able to take care of myself. I was able to eat properly. I was able to just like love myself again. So my pandemic story is so different. But I was also able to do Reiki. Like I met Reiki practitioner. I did a lot of holistic, like meeting a lot of holistic people as well. So like there's something called a Rubimed, which I literally could not explain to anyone for the God-given life of me because it's not well known. I had a natural path. Like I just went on natural routes as well because I didn't just want the medical perspective, which leads me into like my business, Heal With Mel. Because a lot of inner work has helped me on the outside. And I believe like 
with Reiki, Reiki helps clears, like it clears negative and stagnant energy and all the blocks you have in you. So that really helped me like focus on, okay, where can I like focus on my body? And like, like just with all the natural parts of that, it inspired me to want to help other women who are suffering through trauma or through pain. And I do that with Reiki. And I also have a mindset program that I do because I believe mindset is such a big thing with mental illness and like with eating disorders, of course you need therapy. Of course you need counseling, but if you're healing yourself from the inside and changing that mindset perspective, for me, at least that is what really helped me thrive last year. So now I'm offering that out through what I have now created heal with Mel. So that is me. And how do you that do the Reiki online? So it's distant healing. I'm not allowed to like kind of say how I do the healing. Oh, I know but distant it's, healing. I've done my level two Reiki. I know. Oh, so then you yes. can level one. Okay. Laura just did her level one. So I, I nothing. Would, <laughs> yeah, so I just do it like I'm still like finishing up my last little practice of it, but I'll do it like through either Zoom or I'll do it on the computer. But I will not have that person be on camera or myself because I don't want that emotional aspect to be taken away from because you're in such a vulnerable state. And like, even when I do it in person, like I always like to say, like, be your, like, do what you need to do. Like I've been practicing on my family and like, sometimes they fall asleep. They do what they need to do. But I think that distance wise, like I always say like, you know, have a Kleenex nearby because I don't know, emotions could pop up during, after a session, prior to a session, like, because you just don't know what you're going to release during your sessions. Was there ever time for, for any of you that you said to yourself, like enough is enough like this, or do you feel like you haven't even reached that moment yet that time, like it's enough, like we need to- Like in terms of eating disorder or? Yeah. In terms of like-, like Getting rid of oh, it? Not, getting, not having it anymore or- is it possible to even not have it? No, I think you can't even ask that because it's not something we choose or we pick to have and say, now I want it. Now I don't want it. We're not able to do that. No, I think she means like for recovery, like you get to a point where you're just so done with the disease that you're like, I need help. Help me. Is that what you mean, Laura? Yeah. Like like that. Like I just need to get together. Yeah. Oh, like, I think for me getting recovery, I want recovery, but I don't want certain things that come with recovery. That's how I know maybe I'm not ready yet. You know, I want part of the illness, but I don't want full recovery because that will take away from the parts that I like. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right? Incredible. That's the way right. I'm sitting at it now. You know? I would be in recovery right now if I could get in. Not because I, I don't want the stuff that comes with it, but because I don't ever want to be that sick ever again. And I go so quickly that I'm so terrified that I've lost, it's already dramatic, so, but not quick. But I'm so afraid that because I'm right now, you're slipping. I'm slipping, so, <laughs> and it could just go bam, and I won't live this time because I barely lived last time. So it's terrifying for me. I don't want it. I don't know how to stop it. I don't even know, I can't comprehend because I know it's coming, but I don't understand why I just can't say no. But even now, you're concerned about your weight and what you're eating. But yeah. We have to be honest. So even though we do want recovery, we don't want to be sick. Really, we mm-hmm. don't. But there's a lot that comes with that recovery. You don't want to put, but you don't want to put weight on. Right. Yeah. Right. For me, that's one of the biggest issues. And I can only speak for myself, but I know you've mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, with diet pills. I don't like what I see in the mirror. So I would like to lose some weight. Yes. I knew for me, when I started going to Credit Valley Hospital, when they said there was like an inpatient section, I was like, I'm not, no, like there's no way that I'm going to go into inpatient. There's no way I'm going to miss work. Like I can't do that. And I remember at one point there was something about if I don't get like my weight and stuff back together, like I wouldn't be able to get pregnant. So I remember that being huge for me because last November I was supposed to get married and pandemic. It's okay. But I remember that one thing saying like, you could have fertility issues with your eating disorder. And I was like, that's not happening. Like I'm going to be a mom one day. Thank like the universe and God that I'm pregnant now. And like, I was in a good stage, like that I did, like, I'm still recovering, but I knew that I wasn't going to get any worse. But I did like last year, I had to get my appendix removed in May And I had a lapse after that because I was losing weight again. So it's like, 
Mm-hmm. I knew that I couldn't get worse because I wouldn't allow myself because I wasn't going to go into a hospital. I wasn't going to stay overnight. I wasn't going to not be with my fiance. Like I wasn't not going to miss out on my life. And I wasn't going to let this eating disorder like take over my life, even yeah. though it did for a little portion of my time. Like it affected You're lucky me. you can do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I was like, no, like I'm not getting worse. And thank God I didn't get worse. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. I know Kathy alluded to this just before we end in the beginning. I know for myself, I'm European, so I'm Italian. So growing up, you know, you were either too thin or too big. Like there was nothing that was, nothing was perfect. It was you right. too much. You didn't eat enough or if you gained too much weight, it's like, oh my God, what's happening? If you lost too much weight. So I'm curious for any of you, if it was cultural that may have triggered and maybe even early on in terms of expectations from family members. I think what happened is we had to sit at the table until we finished, mm-hmm. regardless if you liked it, you didn't, you had to, as I was growing up, you know, there was always lots of food. My mother worked. We waited till she got home to cook dinner, but the pantry was always full of candies and chips. So you ate whatever you wanted. Then you ate dinner. And when you're, you waited till she cleaned up and said, what's for dessert kind of thing. You know what I mean? But then I'd go to my own apartment and I'd say, my mother would call me and say, what are you eating? I'd say a pizza. She'd go, oh, that's fattening. So there was that, okay. And you go to a relative and the first thing is food, food, which is very European. You know, that was very much my culture growing up, you know. I think for me, like, I wasn't, like, I there was never like, oh, you need to, like, finish this, blah, blah, blah. But I was always told, like, you're so skinny. Like, I wish I looked like you. Like, you're so skinny. Like, I even still get told to say, like, oh, my God, like, you're so thin. And it's like, metabolism plays a really big role in how you eat, too, though. Like, I have a really high metabolism. Like, I could, even pre, like, eating disorder, I could eat something and be hungry 10 minutes later because... It's just already digested and whatever, but I'm European too. So like, I know it was always like, oh, like, what can I get you to eat? Like, oh, are you hungry? What can I get for you? It's like, but I don't think culture played a role for me at all. I think again, for me, it was the lack of control that really like triggered that eating disorder. For me, it was definitely the neglect. My father would say stuff to me like, you're ugly, you're worthless, you're stupid, you're a moron get out of here. You're sickening. You're stupid. And these things just made me really believe it. And I kind of just shriveled away and was unloved in the family unit. So I was never eating. I never ate. I never, and I got my attention and all of my love came for being so skinny. It was the only thing I had. It was the only thing that anyone recognized me for. Everything else, I was just beaten up. I was so badly neglected. As I said, going to school was like food in my hair unclean clothes, pajama bottoms. And people would say, ew, you stink. Get away from me. Ew. Nobody would sit at me with me at lunch. You know, it wasn't like it is now where, you know, kids are more understanding that nobody sat with me. They just made fun of me. You know, it was just absolutely awful growing up. So I never ate and everyone was always like, how skinny you are, you know? And I'd be like, they love me. Somebody likes me, you know, but they really didn't. They would just make the comments, but at least someone spoke to me, you know? So I think it was environmental, you know, they knew I was the girl who lived in the crazy home, you know, where the police came to or where the father would go nuts and things would smash. So, you know, I was always that girl, you know, the one who didn't have anything. As we come to an end, I just want to go teach one of you. And if there's anything that is you're being called to share, anything that you want to share, Mel, do you want to start? Okay. I think if there's one thing or like a few things I would end like saying is, Don't be afraid to receive the help because you're always supported, even if you don't feel like it. Don't look at the damn scale because the scale is not your worth. And food is fuel. Always eat. Even if like you don't feel hungry and you know you're hungry, go and eat something because your body, like you have to listen to your body at the end of the day. Your body loves you and it's the only one that we have. I think the biggest lesson I have to learn is to love yourself. And to accept yourself. No, no one is perfect. No body is perfect. There are ideals set for everybody that no one can reach. And so love what you have. I have wasted my entire life not loving what I had, you know, and it's so damaging. And it's so much of a waste of life to worry about what you can't change and what you shouldn't change. So love yourself and then you can deal with so much more than what you know. For me, I just want to say, boy. 
girl, transgender, 70-year-old, 5-year-old, 20-year-old, no matter what your age, you matter. You can have an eating disorder and there is help. You can get help. You are important and you matter. Every single one of us matter. We can get through this. If we all join together, educate the world, create recovery programs, we can bind together. We can be the change. Let's stand up together and make a difference. Yes. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melissa, Sandra, Kathy. It has been my honor to have you here. Thank you so, so, so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for this platform, Laura. It's making a difference all over the world. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, everyone.